Thank you for joining us here on the Radio Bible Course for our study of Paul's Epistle to the Philippians. We're in Chapter 2. In yesterday's program, I discussed several words which are familiar to Bible students. They're biblical terms, revelation, inspiration, translation, and interpretation. We said that God revealed his mind and his word to the Apostle Paul. That was revelation. And when Paul wrote the manuscripts, he was inspired And that inspiration came by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit not only guarded what he wrote, but informed him so that he would fully express what God had put in his mind. And, of course, he wrote a manuscript that was in the Greek language. Then, following that, men took the originals and made copies. And from the copies, they made translations into other languages in Latin and, of course, in English. That is translation, taking what is in one language and putting it in another. Then, from the English, which you and I deal with primarily, we get the message that God first intended. We call this interpretation. We read the word and we decide what it means. Now, in this process, where there are errors, they are of human origin. The revelation and inspiration were the work of God. Translation, however, is man's work, as is the interpretation of the word of God. When we study God's inspired word, our objective should be to seek the meaning which is in harmony with the original language of the New Testament. And for that reason, we encourage people to study Greek. In the past ten years, I have promoted three courses in beginning Greek, and we hope to have another one. And if you are interested in studying beginning Greek, please write to the Radio Bible course, and we'll put you on the list for the next announcement of that kind of a course. Well, what if one does not know the Greek language? What can he do in the way of Bible study? Well, he can compare translations. He can consult scholars. Scholars have written commentaries and many books about the Bible. So those are tools that he can use. Now, let me ask. When God gave the revelation to the Apostle Paul, how many interpretations of these verses in Philippians did he intend for there to be? I can say without fear that God intended that there be only one interpretation, the true one. It was the single meaning which he expected people would get from what was written. Now, we should recognize that each verse has only one interpretation. It's the divinely intended one. Bible study should aim to discover that interpretation, which means that a passage cannot have many interpretations. Men, however, can have many opinions in seeking that one interpretation. For example, in verse 6, what does it mean when Paul writes that Jesus was in the form of God? Well, form can mean image. 
but not necessarily outward appearance or shape. Adam was made in the image of God, but this did not refer to physical appearance because God didn't have a physical body. God is a spirit. Image or form can refer to the essential nature of a person or thing, and that seems to be what's intended here when it says Christ was in the form of God. He was the essential nature of God the Father. When the Word became flesh, as John writes, he continued to be the image of God. Jesus in his life on earth was the image of God. Every word which he spoke, every attitude which he revealed, and every deed which he performed is what the Father himself wanted. Jesus never spoke for himself. He spoke only the words given by the Father. Now that's far different from the prophets of the Old Testament. Yes, Jesus was a prophet, but what a prophet he was. The prophets in the Old Testament were filled with the Spirit's message from time to time, and they spoke it, and they wrote it. But Jesus was continually filled with the same Spirit and without measure, and every word which he spoke was God's word. If you want to see God, look at Jesus in the Gospels. See how he treats people. See what his attitudes are. See what he scorns. See what he hates and what he loves. The Father was represented by Jesus, and Jesus is the image of the Father. No one should ignore what the writer to the Hebrews wrote in chapter 1. In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by his word of power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has obtained is more excellent than theirs. Ah, this is the Jesus of the New Testament, one who is equal to God and one who has delegated all authority by the Father in heaven. It's important that we who love the Word of God understand that Jesus is the image of God and is equal to God. I say this because there are people who will come knocking on your door. They do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God and equal with God. Yet the Gospel of John, chapter 5, makes it clear. Mark that in your Bible. It tells us in verse 18, this was why the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also called God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And then Jesus displayed by his words that he indeed was equal to the Father. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever he does, 
that the Son does likewise. Now that's equality. And then Jesus added, For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, that you may marvel. Now listen to this. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. How could Jesus be only a man if he could give life? And if he could raise the dead, he must be more than a man. And then Jesus carried it out a little further when he said, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Why? That all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. One thing is certain, no man could make a claim like that. And... Farther down on the page, in John chapter 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Ah, Jesus has the same power as the Father to raise the dead. And he explained it this way, For as the Father has life in himself... So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Now, returning to Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes that Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word grasp can also be substituted by clutch. In what sense, then, did he not clutch or grasp that equality? The answer is that he gave up independence and the right to exercise his own will. He existed as the Son of God, but did not seize this position to exploit his privileges. Oh, Jesus could have annihilated every opponent. He could have ordered nature to serve him, and he could have beckoned the assistance of thousands upon thousands of angels. But he did not. He let go of those privileges. When the mob came to arrest him, Jesus told Peter to put down his sword. And he added this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. A legion is six thousand. That means at his disposal suddenly could have been seventy-two thousand angels to assist him. Well, he didn't need them. He didn't come here to fight battles. Jesus came here to do the will of God and to die for the sinner that God could have us all forever. Now, Jesus did not regard the divine authority which he had as a treasure to be held on to. And the result of his attitude is described in verse 7. He emptied himself, or, as it says in the King James Version, he made himself of no reputation. How did he empty himself? Paul tells us by taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. He did not empty himself of deity. 
He did not divest himself of divine attributes. Unbelievers have made that claim, not wanting to respect Jesus as God the Son. But verse 6 does not imply the loss of deity. On the contrary, there were occasions when the divine glory penetrated through his humanity. And Luke recorded one of those events in chapter 9, verse 29. It says, And as he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men talked with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. And then it tells us that Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they wakened, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And then later a cloud came over them all and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. We call that the transfiguration, and we'll continue that subject tomorrow. Almost everyone who has attended church or Sunday school has heard the word grace, but not many people understand it, unfortunately. Well, we of the Radio Bible Course think we can be of help to many people with our free booklet entitled Grace. It's one of the great words of the Bible. Write for your copy today. When you write, be sure to give the call letters of your station. Until tomorrow, this is Nick Calavota reminding you that the word gospel means good news. Our address is Radio Bible Courses, Post Office Box 14916, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 70898. The website is rbcword.com.